The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. It's pretty common for me on Saturday to go upstairs, kind of close the door, and continue to work over the sermon, try to put finishing touches on it. And most of the time that I'm doing that, Steph is home. But in the occasions that she's not home and the kids are all downstairs and I'm upstairs, pretty frequently someone will come up the stairs and knock on the door and tell me that things are not going well downstairs. And so what I normally do first is I'll send my word through that messenger that came to the door. And normally the messenger has come to say that I wasn't doing anything wrong, but those other ones down there. And so I sent a message through him. And he normally shares a word like, share the toy, or some profound statement like that. But pretty often he comes back up again. And the second or third or fourth time that he knocks, and I realize that I'm not going to get any studying done, um, my word becomes flesh, and I walk down the stairs. <laughs> and I embody my message, and I incarnate it to my children to let them know um, things are not working very well down here. Now, the reason I give that illustration up front is to remind us that this time of year, for for many reasons that I think are good and fine and fair, we have this vague sentimentality in the air. And that's not necessarily bad. The sugary sweetness that's on our tables or the Hallmark movies on our TVs or any of the other sort of vague goodwill is not a bad thing unless it causes us to forget that the message of Christmas is actually rather confrontational. The message of Christmas is that God had to come down the stairs. God had to come down the stairs because humanity, including all of us, you and me, have a tendency to badly misplace our hope and trust. And so God, in grace and goodness, caused the Word to become flesh. And His Word became flesh to do what we could not do, to fix what we could not fix. For unto us a child is born... A son is given. And this morning, I'd like to unpack that well-known passage for you in Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 680 or 681. We'll be between those two pages. You'll want the Bible open because we will refer to it throughout the sermon this morning. The title is, For Unto Us a Child is Born. I'd like to show you from this passage that God in His goodness and grace at Christmas has actually sent His Son to confront Wrong sources of trust that we may put our hope in. We can put our hope in worldly wisdom or human strength or in man-made wholeness. But God sends his son because we actually cannot achieve those things apart from him. This morning, uh, my notes are a little different than what you have on your bulletin, so I'll just tell you. I'd like to break the sermon down in two parts. Part one will be how God confronts through Christmas the world's values through a baby with four names. That'll be verses 6 and 7. And then we'll actually go back in the text to verse 1. So we'll start in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 9. Then we'll go back to verse 1 for part 2. The transformation this child empowers through Christmas. Okay, so now we're in part 1. How Christmas confronts worldly wisdom, power, and values through the baby born with four names. So look in God's word, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. 
And I'll try not to sing this verse while, while I read it, although the Messiah is fresh on my mind. So, For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. It's r- remarkable right away that this person is called a child. In, in Hebrew, Hebrew normally has the verb first and the subject later, but this time the subject is put first. That's a way in, in that kind of day to highlight it or put it in bold. They're saying this child is unique and special. And the fact that he's a child means that he's vulnerable. A child is born to be vulnerable, to do something that requires vulnerability. And yet this child is the son. So he comes in the authority of the father, coming in the authority of the father, and yet with the vulnerability of a child. Don't you see the word becoming flesh, right? So the authority of the father and yet the vulnerability of a child. And this child is born with four names. My wife and I, as many of you know, are due with our fifth, probably over Christmas, and we're out of baby names. So this child has four, which is helpful. The four names of this child, though, we don't have time to go through all of Isaiah, of course, this morning, but because this text is normally given at Christmas without knowing a little bit of the background, can I just give you a little bit of the background so that you know that these names are actually specifically chosen to confront the wrong places they've put their faith. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is confronting, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read some summaries. Isaiah is confronting the wrong places they've put their faith. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field until there is no space left. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. So one place they've wrongly put their faith is in the accumulation of their possessions. The Lord says, that's the wrong place for your faith. This child will confront that. The second wrong place they put their faith is verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Verse 12, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and trembles and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord. This is the second wrong place they put their faith. They put it in just empty, hollow, pleasure-seeking hedonism without heeding the word of the Lord. Isaiah 5 goes further. This one sounds a lot like our culture now, if I could be so bold. Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, the Lord says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Have you seen that replicated? Calling what God calls good evil. Calling what God calls evil good. Woe to those who put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. This child will confront faith in human authority or human morality. Finally, We read in chapter 5, The Lord looked for justice, but beheld bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but beheld an outcry. So verse 23 of chapter 5, Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. So this child will confront faith in our own possessions, faith in our own morality, faith in our own sense of justice. We've failed in all of these things. And so Christmas is the Lord sending his son because humanity has hopelessly misplaced our trust. Christmas confronts our worldly presuppositions. And let's see that now in the four beautiful names of this child. He is first known, verse 6, as Wonderful Counselor. It's one title. Wonderful Counselor means God of supernatural wisdom and wonders. The Hebrew word for wonder means 
beyond our comprehension or ability. It means supernatural. And the Hebrew word for counselor is amazing to say about a child. This child will come with the ability to give counsel. He will contain all wisdom. Now, isn't that interesting how that immediately confronts worldly wisdom? To be clear, we're not against worldly learning, but the Bible does challenge worldly wisdom. Think of, for example, one of the worldly presuppositions we have. We have the worldly presupposition of natural causation. Everything that happens requires a natural explanation. Things continue as we have observed them to be. How great is it then that God has this child born through virgin birth? See, God right away through the announcement of this child is confronting the presumed wisdom of this world. At Christmas, God is making foolish the wisdom of this world. In fact, isn't that what Gabriel told Mary? He tells Mary that you're conceived of child, not naturally. You're a virgin. You're conceived of child by the Holy Ghost. Mary says, how is this possible? Gabriel says, nothing is impossible for God. See, at Christmas, God challenges the wisdom of this world. First Corinthians 1, we read, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? At Christmas, the wonderful counselor shows God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Why would we put our faith there? Now the second title of this remarkable child. He is known from birth as Mighty God. That's Lord Almighty. The Hebrew is El Gabor. It could be translated God, Hero. All of these four names will be later used in Isaiah of divinity. But this one is perhaps the clearest, that this is a child who is God. But I want you to notice how this child being God, again, confronts and upends our worldly expectations of power. When we think of power, we think of the gifted the attractive, the wealthy, those who are rightly networked in education and social circles. In fact, if any of you work in advertising and you're trying to think of how could I make my company's name known globally? How could I make sure that thousands of years from now, most of the population can immediately understand what this one word means? Can I tell you that no advertising firm in our country would have rolled out the name of Jesus the way that God did? Here he's born in a manger in the middle of nowhere, in a place where there's animal excrement. There's nothing about his birth that seems lovely or attractive. His career, if I could use that term, is cut short by execution. He's crucified in disgrace after a very small run in the public eye. See, the values of this world, our cultural presuppositions, are totally upended by the mighty God come as a child. Jesus makes this clear in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He begins in the Beatitudes saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who... Mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And then he makes the upside down values of his kingdom clearest when he dies on a cross. Though he was equal with God, 
He thought it not robbery, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, humbled himself even further so that he would submit to death, death on a cross. And in that, God has highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. See, at Christmas, God totally turns upside down our view of power. In fact, if we're honest, when we in our culture coalesce power and decide where it's needed, we never even put it in the right place. We think if we can coalesce power, we'll move it to education and that'll bring reform. Or if we can coalesce power, we'll bring about political revolution. Surely that will change things. When God sends the mighty God as a child, he uses his power to defeat sin, 1 Peter 2.24. To defeat Satan, Hebrews 12, 14. And to defeat death, 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. I don't know universities working on those three. So God totally challenges our view of wisdom and of power. But now in the last two names, God challenges our view of achievement. The last two names are, are a little less understandable. So let me take a couple more minutes on them. Here we read in verse 6, not only is he wonderful counselor, Mighty God, but third, he is everlasting Father, Avi Ad. What does that mean that this child would be called everlasting Father? Well, it could be translated Father of Eternity. I think that helps a little bit. Let me explain it a little bit more. The word Father is used in this time period, eight centuries before Christ, normally to refer to a leader. Of course, this is before democracy or constitutions like ours, so pretty much everybody had a king. And that concept would have been used to describe a king, a father of a nation who protects and provides for those in his charge. So let me give these fuller explanations of what this term means. What does it mean when this child is called everlasting father? It means that he has a fatherly concern for those he leads. It also means that he's the founder of a kingdom. Think of how in our own country we think of our original leaders as founding Fathers, but here is the father of an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that has no end. But the third thing I do think it means, because it could be translated father of eternity, is it means giver, like you would father something, giver of eternal life. So this child then is one with father-like demeanor that will reveal the father in everlasting love. Fourth, the last title we have for him is Prince of Peace. Peace is the Hebrew word shalom. If you've ever talked with people who know Hebrew, you might know they use shalom in multiple ways. They may say shalom when they greet you. They may say shalom when they say goodbye to you. Shalom is a very broad term. It refers to harmony, wholeness, peace, justice, prosperity. And the answer to all of those in this child is yes. All of the things that Shalom refers to are things that only this child can fulfill. A personal relationship with God eternally? Yes. Economic prosperity? Yes. Racial harmony? Yes. Justice? Yes. The end of inequality, hate, wickedness, estrangement, sickness, death, sorrow, mourning? Yes. Colossians 1 verse 19 says, In him, in Christ, was all the fullness of God pleased to dwell, and through him he will reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, notice this, by the blood of his cross. 
That's the unique element that no one would have anticipated. The wholeness that is needed comes through the blood of a cross. Here again, the world's wisdom is totally confronted and shown to be wanting. The wholeness that we seek, the wellness that we long for, the peace that we talk about, normally is concluded with something like the answers are within or human achievement. But according to scripture, that is only achieved through the blood of a cross. It is there that shalom is fulfilled. Jesus gives peace by his blood when the word becomes flesh. Peace with God. We're justified by faith and therefore have peace with God. Peace within. Peace I leave unto you, the Lord says. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. And peace with one another. I do want to encourage you this morning because I know that at this time of year, there could be reasons that you feel discouraged about that. When will this be? Perhaps you've noticed some of the Christmas songs we sing talk about things that are true, but they also talk about things that are yet to be true. We sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, but then we also sing he rules the world with truth and peace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. But not all of that is fully fulfilled yet. So I want to remind you that his first coming is the guarantor of his final coming. It's the security of what he will fully do. And what that means for you today is any pain or heartache you feel is not the end of the story. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace will return to make the new heaven and the new earth. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will make all things new. And in retrospect, we will all say what the brothers Karamazov said in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel. Here's what one character said. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to also justify all that has happened. This is the security of what Jesus fulfills. And he fulfills it when he brings about his everlasting kingdom. Look in verse 7 now of Isaiah 9. We saw in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder. But now look in verse 7. Here's when he brings perfect shalom. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace. Now let me just pause there. I don't know about you. I just normally don't think of increased government meaning increased peace. In this case, more government means more peace. That never happens. More government means more peace when he's the ruler and that will have no end. Verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. I normally don't think of thrones executing justice and righteousness, but in his case. But notice clearly how this happens from this time forth and forevermore. Who is going to secure this? The answer is not us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. We'll do this. Lord Almighty. 
I want to tell you what's happened historically so you appreciate the impact of this passage. Remember, this is about the 8th century B.C., and at this time in history, God's people, the nation of Israel, are split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, those ten tribes, are known as Israel. The southern two tribes are known as Judah, and they are constantly facing external military threats. And God tells them through the prophets that all of the military threats they are facing are because they have rejected the Lord. They have not put their trust in him. So in the 8th century B.C., Ahaz is the king of the northern tribes of Israel. Ahaz observes that there's a a Syrian-Ephraimite tandem that's now coming to bring a threat militarily on him. And so he thinks, how can I handle this? And rather than going to the Lord in faith, he makes a pact with Assyria and thinks Assyria surely will help me escape the problems that I'm facing. And then God in righteous reminder, brings Assyria as actually the means of his very devastation and then makes this promise. One day, a child will be born who's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace, and of his government, there will be no end. Not yours, Ahaz. Those who have put their faith in the wrong thing find that the very thing they trusted ends up being the cause of their demise. So hear me this morning. Christmas is good news, but it's good news because it confronts wrong sources of hope, broken cisterns that hold no water. This morning, if you're trusting natural causation, Christmas challenges you. If you're trusting human achievement, Christmas challenges you. If you're trusting cultural values... Christmas challenges you. Through Christmas, God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. Again, as Gabriel told Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Isaiah begins in chapter 1, verse 4, saying all the prophecies Isaiah will give over the next 66 chapters are because they forsook the Lord. But the amazing thing is that the hope of the prophecies all centers on this one specified individual. He's called in the book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. Admittedly, the references, sometimes you think, is he referring to the nation of Israel? Who is he referring to? But I think if, if Isaiah has ever overwhelmed you, it is a big and difficult book. Here's a simple way to think of it. Chapter 1 through 39 is about the promised king. The Davidic ruler, who's the servant of the Lord, who will reign in righteousness. Chapter 40 through 55 is about the priest, the servant of the Lord, who will suffer to atone for his people. And chapter 56 through 66 is about the prophet, the servant of the Lord, who will shine radiantly the light of God's salvation. And this birth announcement is relevant for us today so that we don't put our hope in the wrong place It's given 700 years before it's fulfilled. So part one was how Christmas confronts the wisdom of this world. But now part two. If our hope is in this child, let me show you the good things that God does through him. And that's verses one through five. There are three. Here's the first. Number one, through this child, God gives light greater than darkness. Look in verse one of Isaiah chapter nine. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are tribes that are first attacked by Assyria. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Here's the amazing thing God does. The very first two tribes to fall to Assyria will be the tribes in which God sends his son. God's son will come from Nazareth. He will spend time in Galilee, a place where no one thought anything good can come. Do you remember from the gospel of John? When Nathanael hears about the Messiah and he goes to Philip and tells him about him and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then in chapter 7, they're debating whether or not Jesus could be the Christ because he's from Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations was a hated area because it was thought of as mixed heritage. But in Matthew 4, verse 12, Jesus withdrew to Galilee and it says this was to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. So what will move them from gloom to glory? Not that they have come to the Lord, but that God has sent his son to them. Look in verse 2. Here's the good news. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a great light has shone. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. As Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever receives me will never walk in darkness. As John 1 says, the word became flesh. The light of the world came and the darkness could not overcome it. I want to encourage you again this morning. I know that many people struggle at Christmas time for various reasons. Pains that you have at other times of the year may feel heightened this time of year. Perhaps you have estrangement in your family, bereavement that you've recently felt, financial difficulties that no one else maybe is aware of. And this is a time where everyone wants to look their best, their food look their best, their pictures be their best, but internally you might be in deep pain. So look in verse 2 again. Who does the light shine on? Those in deep darkness. I have good news for you this morning. God did not come to high-five those who already have it together. God came to shine light for those who are in darkness. This is what Christmas means. God is giving light where there was none. When Jesus comes as the light of the world, he gives joy even where there's sorrow. So number one, a light greater than darkness, a glory greater than gloom. And if this morning you find yourself especially discouraged, I want to encourage you to consider Jesus who came in lowly estate so that your low estate could be raised eternally. Consider Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief so he could wipe every tear from your eye. Consider Jesus, exiled and abandoned so you could be eternally accepted and loved. Is there not reason for glory over gloom? So sing it freshly this Season, silent night, holy night, son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from my holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Number one was a light greater than darkness. Now number two is a joy greater than sorrow. Look in verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Moments of ecstasy are descriptive of when God sends his son. 
You have to picture historically why the multiplication of the nation is so meaningful. Remember, they've already had a civil war, so to speak, and they're split into two categories, and the top ten tribes are about to be taken. There's only two left. Things are looking very grim. The expectation is we we don't have a nation at all. And God says, actually, I'm going to multiply it. In Isaiah 54, he returns to this and says, Sing, barren woman who never bore a child. Shout for joy, those who were never in labor, because more are the children of a desolate woman than of her who has a husband. See, God is promising that he's going to multiply a nation that appears to be dwindling. He's going to add people to the community of faith where they were not expected to ever come from. Jesus will actually tell his disciples, go out into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. At the end of the Bible, we read this in Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number of every tribe, tongue, and nation stood before the throne of the Lamb, saying, worthy is the Lamb. Now, did you catch that phrase? A multitude whom no one could number. What did God tell Abraham his descendants would be? Look at the stars. They're more than you can number. You come to the end of the Bible. Look at the saints. They're more than you can number. See, God multitudes the nation because God is great in his grace and abundant in his mercy. John 3 says it so well in verse 17. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. God gives grace to any. There's no reason you can't join that nation today. Call on the name of the Lord. God's arms are open. Sending his son for all. Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, the thief came to steal and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Multiplying his grace. So number one was God gives light greater than darkness. Number two, joy greater than sorrow. But here's the third thing God gives through his child. This is great. Rest greater than burden. Rest greater than any burden. Look in Isaiah 9, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. Now, what is a yoke? I, I think of eggs right away, so it takes me a minute. But what is a yoke in the biblical era? To help you picture it, it, are, it is two oxen that have something across their necks that unites them together. Not just together, this is very important, but together pulling a cart so in the Bible, a yoke is an instrument to increase weight in the hopes of increasing productivity. The closest thing we have today is if you have a truck and you already filled the bed of it and you need more, you attach the trailer hitch so that you can attach the trailer. The closest thing we have to a yoke would be the hitch. What are you doing when you put the hitch in the truck? You're preparing to pull more weight. You're going to add to your burden. This is amazing. When Jesus comes in Matthew 11, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That makes no sense. When you add a hitch, you add a yoke, it's to increase weight. Jesus comes and says, but if you take mine, I will decrease weight. And release your burden. How? 
because he carries it. He gives rest for your soul because he takes the yoke. This is what the child does. The child breaks the burden. Have you read Pilgrim's Progress? You know how at the beginning he's got that huge backpack and at Calvary it rolls off. This is what the wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father does to any who believe. He carries it and gives rest. I want you to notice very carefully in verse 4 though. Look carefully at the words. Notice what he breaks. He breaks the staff and the rod of an oppressor. Can I press this for you for a second? Aren't the staff and the rod things that can be used in a good way? You know the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So the rod and the staff are not things that are intrinsically bad. The issue is who wields them. When they're wielded by an oppressor, They're awful and they have to be broken. So let me just remind you of something this morning because pastorally I see this all the time. Josh, I have this thing going on and I just, I know it's a good thing, but it seems to be oppressive and burdensome to me. I mean, marriage is a gift, but mine seems really hard right now. Parenting is a gift. Mine seems really hard right now. School is a good thing. Mine seems really hard right now. Can I just tell you, friend, then the wrong person's wielding it. When the right person wields it, it works. When the oppressor wields it, it is burdensome. So verse 4, he's saying the rod and the staff in the wrong hands are burdensome. But how are they broken? He said like on the day of Midian. Do you know what he's referring to? Do you remember Gideon? Right? Gideon's that guy that thought I can go into battle and I'll count my men. And God says, you have too many men. (laughs) There are thousands of Midianites he has to go to battle against. And God says, nope, you have too many, so I'm going to make you do an exercise. Some of them are going to lap water, some won't. And I'm going to whittle your army down. And he whittles his army all the way down to 300 to go against thousands and thousands to teach him a very, very important lesson. When God is in it, you succeed. But without God, see, that's the lesson for us still. When this child comes and your hope is in him, it succeeds. When this child comes, if your hope remains subtly in yourself to wield it, if you're like, well, if my hand is on it, now you sometimes just got to let your hand go. So verse five, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And if we're honest, we read a verse like that and we think that's important. I probably don't know why though. What is happening here? Verse five is telling us something that happened when God would bring victory. God would bring victory with such totality, he would allow no plunder to be taken. You're not allowed to take the boots of the enemy. You don't need the garments. You just burn it all because God has provided the victory and he'll provide what you need tomorrow. So all of it's destroyed to show that God's victory will be total. Let me tell you that when God's son comes, the victory is total. One of the saddest things that happens in the Bible is when God's son does come. This child is born. And the Jews think that he's not what they need. They say, no, no, if we have a Messiah, we just need someone to get us under Rome's thumb. And then everything will be great. And I'm like, have you read the rest of the Old Testament? (laughs) Things didn't go well when you were on your own. 
But in their mind, they just think if we can get rid of our political enemies, we'll be fine. But actually, what Jesus does is much greater than that. Jesus says in John 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. See, what Jesus has come to do is break something much greater than our temporary problems. He's come to destroy sin's penalty and power and presence. And his greatest victory is not on a political podium, but on a rugged cross smeared with his own blood. And his greatest validation is not the applause of a crowd, but is the resurrection by his Father's power over everything that stood against us. Charles Wesley wrote it well. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the followest clean. His blood availed for me. Have you received it? We sing about it. Change shall he break. In his name all oppression shall cease. Have you received that? Let Jesus take your burden. Let him break what stands against you. Let Christmas challenge the things we put our trust in. We put our trust in the natural, in the material, and Jesus is virgin born. We put our trust in human achievement, and Jesus dies on a cross. We put our trust in human values, and Jesus is unwanted, Isaiah will say in chapter 53, despised of men. But let me tell you about these four names again. Remember at Christmas, Jesus is the everlasting Father who gives eternal life. I admit this is a little fresh on me because this this week I preached two funerals and spent time in a hospital where another one of our members passed away. And I just have to tell you, are you ready to face death with confidence and assurance of something greater to follow? You will not find that in this world. You need an everlasting Father who gives you life that cannot be taken away and who has a kingdom where he will right all wrongs. That person is Jesus. Number two, not only do you need an everlasting father for eternal life, you need wholeness that only comes from the Prince of Peace. Absolute peace of conscience. No one on the other side of a chair can give you that. Someone who gives you complete assurance of restoration of every wrong right up. Only the Prince of Peace does this. But third, you need hope in the impossible. And the impossible is done by the wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God. God who causes a virgin to conceive. God who makes the name of Jesus above every name. God who cancels sin's debt and death sting on the cross. God who raises the dead and God today who still changes hearts and saves souls. So this morning... We've seen that Christmas can confront the false places we put our trust, and it does so through the wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. So how do you respond to that? How do you receive that? How do you get in on it? The answer the Bible gives is so simple. It's almost too good to be true, but in this case it is. You simply believe. You trust in this child, not in anything else. For nothing is impossible with God. This morning, there's a decision each one of us has to make. Even if you're here and you say, well, Josh, I have trusted in the child, but let me encourage you again. Are you resting in the wisdom below or in the word that came down and became flesh?
Let Jesus give you light greater than darkness. Let him give you joy greater than sorrow. And let him give you rest greater than your burdens. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, thank you, Lord, that the word became flesh. And after 700 years, you gave to us a son with the authority of the father and yet a child vulnerable enough to die. Thank you that Jesus was born to die so that we would never have to. He's the resurrection and the life and anyone who believes in him, though he die, yet shall he also live. So, Lord, thank you that Christmas has totally upended and challenged and actually defeated the wisdom of this world. Protect us and deliver us from putting our faith in that which actually cannot save us and cannot give us the hope that only Jesus Christ can. And, Lord, perhaps many of us today, we we really are Christians. We do believe in God, but, but we're not experiencing that because we're not actively resting in the Lord right now. We've started to move our attention like the nation of Israel did. Return us, Lord, to see that nothing is impossible apart from God. Move us from darkness to light, from gloom to glory. Lord, from sorrow to joy and from burden to rest. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.